Hey everybody, welcome back to Cruciformed. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to the podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time to be with me. And wherever you are, I just pray right now that you would be richly blessed by the Father and that your vision of God would become more and more influenced by the life and ministry of Jesus as we see in the scriptures. And that's that's what this podcast is all about. So let's get right to it. I am entitling this particular podcast, The Invasion of Christmas. So this episode is called The Invasion of Christmas. And that's very intentional. Um, I am looking to kind of put a new spin on the way we see Christmas. There's so much that uh, you just don't see when you look at the Bible and you look at the way that Jesus came into the world. If you don't see it from the perspective that Christ himself had as he was here on the earth. If you don't see it through the vision that Jesus had for himself and has for us and that he saw the world through, if you don't see it, in other words, through this warfare worldview, you will miss the significance of Christmas because it's about much, much more than a nice baby being born to a poor couple in some town that nobody's heard of. Um, oddly enough, very close to a very famous town. But anyway, if you don't look at it through the lens of the cross, you will miss the significance of Christmas. And Christmas, Christmas is not, it's not what we've made it out to be. It's not this time of beauty and love and peace even though it is those things, it's much, much more. So let's let's get into that a little bit. Uh, what do I mean when I say the invasion of Christmas? Well, God came to dwell among us, and it wasn't an afterthought. This idea that, you know, the old covenant idea that he had failed, and then Jesus comes on the scene to try, you know, testament number two, covenant number two, is completely wrong. So if you've got that idea in your mind, if that's something that you've thrown around over the years, just let go of that right now. Because what God did when he came to be with us at Christmas is he continued, he fulfilled, he walked out. There was a continuation of the covenant. It wasn't a nullification of one and starting up a new one like this failed, so I'm going to try something else. It's not like, okay, Adam, you screwed up big time, so Jesus has got to come fix it all. So don't think that way. But let's just start with uh, a couple of things. So we're just a few days away from Christmas. And um, just as I took a break from the podcast for Thanksgiving, I'll probably do the same thing for Christmas. Either way, though, I wanted to take some time and talk about Christmas with you, especially as it relates to uh, what we've been talking about up to this point. And I want to take a minute to remind you that I have an email address just for the podcast. And you are welcome to send your thoughts in whatever form video, audio, whatever you want to me uh, via that email address. And I will listen to, uh, view, whatever it is that the form takes that you use to voice your thoughts. I will definitely check those out and I will respond. So the address is cruciformedpodcast at gmail.com. And I'm going to spell that out for you. It's C-R-U-C-I-F as in Frank, O-R-M-E-D, P-O-D-C-A-S-T. So that's cruciformedpodcast at gmail.com. And I really, really welcome uh, any thoughts that you've got, any comments, whether you're 
raging mad and think that I'm a, you know, a heretic or whatever, or you agree, or maybe the Lord is showing you some new things through uh, my thoughts and the things that we talk about on here. Yeah, I just welcome it all. Feel free to send me anything and everything that you've got. So here, as we get into why Jesus came at Christmas time, we talk about lights, trees, presents, joy, peace, All of these come to mind when we think about Christmas. Christmas is a time when we seek to put the darkness of the past years and the difficulties of that time behind us. And we allow ourselves and those we love or even those we don't to be filled with the light from heaven that outshines all the should-haves and could-haves and maybes of the past year. Christmas is a time when we are all trying to press into that ever-elusive, all is calm and all is bright. And it is a time when we try to show the best side of ourselves in an effort to reflect the mission of the Prince of Peace to whom the world owes its every moment. Christmas is a wonderful time for most, a dark and difficult time for some, and a time of reflection and hope for everybody. But what would you think if you were told that Christmas is a time of cosmic upheaval? How would you feel if you heard a sermon on Christmas Eve entitled, The Baby Who Makes War? Christmas is certainly a time of peace and light and beauty and hope and giving, many other wonderful sentiments. But fundamentally, Christmas, for the Christian, is something far bigger, far more wide-reaching than all of those things. Christmas, the coming of Jesus into the world, whether that happened on December 24th or, far more likely, historically, sometime in the early autumn, it's the day when God showed the entire cosmos that he was simply not going to allow it to vanish into the black hole of sin and damnation that threatened it at every turn. Christmas is when the heavenly kingdom declared war on the powers of darkness that had wrapped the cosmos in a deadly illusion of separation and fear. Christmas is when the Father, Son, and Spirit manifested their undying determination to fuse the uncreated with the creation, to deal a death blow to the ancient gods that had stolen the place of honor from God's crowning creation, you and I. Christmas is when God shouted, No more into the depths of our alienation, and declared once and for all that he would not be God without us. He would for all eternity be God with us and God for us. Christmas is when Jesus set foot in our world as one of us, and in so doing, declared that the kingdom of God had come. And this meant that the rival kingdom of Satan was doomed. I'm going to read the Christmas story here together. Um, I encourage you to do that on your own with your family or if you've got a group of friends or even if it's just by yourself. I encourage you to open the book that we're all trying to get a better perspective of through the cross and just look at it with fresh eyes to see it as you've never seen it before and to take a look at what Luke or Matthew or whoever records. Uh, You can read many different versions. I'm going to read from the book of Luke today. And I'm reading from the New Testament Uh, that N.T. Wright translated. So it's the New Testament for the 21st century is what it's called, but it's actually the Kingdom New Testament. So 
that is uh, something I really recommend. N.T. Wright is one of my favorite scholars, uh, just super balanced, extremely helpful in his understanding of Jesus and the particular way that he fits into the New Testament world, the way that he saw his mission. Um, N.T. Wright's just brilliant. You should, you should read everything you can get your hands on by him. But let's get into it here. The birth of Jesus took place like this. At that time, a decree was issued by Augustus Caesar. A census was to be taken of the whole world. This was the first census before the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So everyone set off to be registered, each to their own town. Joseph, too, who belonged to the house and family of David, went from the city of Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judea, David's city, to be registered with his fiancée, Mary, who was pregnant. So that's where they were when the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him up and put him to rest in a feeding trough because there was no room for them in the normal living quarters. There were shepherds in that region out in the open keeping a night watch around their flock. An angel of the Lord stood in front of them. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Don't be afraid, the angel said to them. Look, I've got good news for you. News which will make everybody very happy. Today, a Savior has been born for you, the Messiah, the Lord, in David's town. This will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly, with the angel, there was a crowd of the heavenly armies. They were praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace among earth, among those in his favor. And when the angels had gone away again into heaven, the shepherds said to each other, Well then, let's go to Bethlehem and see what it's all about. All this that the Lord has told us. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the child lying in the feeding trough. When they saw it, they told them what had been said to them about this child. And all the people who heard it were amazed at all the things the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and mused over them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told to them. After the eight day, uh, eight days, excuse me, the time came to circumcise the baby. He was called by the name Jesus, which the angel had given him before he had been conceived in the womb. When the time came for them to be purified according to the law of Moses, they took him up to Jerusalem to present him before the Lord. That's when the law of the Lord says, "Every firstborn male shall be called holy to the Lord." They also came to offer sacrifice according to what it says in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout, waiting for God to comfort Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Led by the Spirit, he came into the temple as Jesus' parents brought him in to do for him what the law's regulations required. He took the baby in his arms and blessed God with these words. Now, Master, you are dismissing your servant in peace, just as you said. Those eyes of mine have seen your salvation, which you have made ready in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the nations, and glory for your people Israel. His mother and father were astonished at the things that were said about him. Simeon blessed them 
Listen, he said to Mary, his mother, this child has been placed here to make many in Israel fall and rise again, and as a sign that will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will go through your own soul as well, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be discovered. There was also a prophetess called Anna, the daughter of Phanuel in the tribe of Asher. She was a great age, having been widowed after a seven-year marriage, and was now 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped with fasting and prayer night and day. She came up at that moment and gave thanks to God and spoke about Jesus to everyone who was waiting for the redemption of Israel. So when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their town in Nazareth. The child grew and became strong and was full of wisdom, and God's grace was upon him. Pretty incredible story foretold by the prophets. Jesus would come and fulfill that which was hinted at in the Old Testament. He would come and fulfill the law in a way that none of us are capable of. In episode two and three, we talked about the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of the world, which was ruled and ran by Satan and his cadre of fallen gods. The New Testament very clearly shows that Jesus was born to bring an end to that rival satanic rule. In 1 John 3, 8, it says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In John 12, 31, it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. This is Jesus speaking just before he's crucified. Yes, Jesus came in a beautiful way. He came in a way that we memorialize and celebrate with our different nativity scenes and church and school plays. He came in a way that is endearing and beautiful, gentle and loving. But ultimately, what Jesus did when he was born is knocked loudly on the gates of hell and said, your time is over. Jesus came in order to put an end to the rule that had been set up in our place by the fallen powers. When Adam and Eve sinned and fell in the garden after the fall of the angels, the rule and the manifestation of God's kingdom rule that was given to them was usurped by these powers, and they gave up their right, so to speak, to rule the earth, and it's been ruled by the rival kingdom ever since. But Jesus is clear all throughout his ministry. He says that I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. And this is preceded by the statement that the thief, the devil, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus is contrasting the two kingdoms constantly throughout his ministry. He is showing that the kingdom of the world, overseen and ran by Satan and and the rival powers, has come to its final days. 
when we talk about the latter days or the last days in eschatology, the study of last things, we often mean that our world will one day just come crashing down, that the thing that we are so solidly standing on at this moment is going to be consumed by fire and there's going to be a redemption and God's going to remake and renew and destroy that which we are so familiar with. But what really happens in the latter days, in the last days, is not that God is going to utterly wipe the earth off the face of existence. What he's doing is ending decisively, finally, the rule of Satan and his fallen gods. What God is up to in Christmas is declaring war on the powers of darkness. He's saying, no more, no more. No more let sin and sorrow reign. The song Joy to the World, that is just, it's like a warfare anthem. Go read it sometime. I'm not going to read it on here, but go read it sometime. No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. That's from the Hallelujah Chorus. So many of these songs that we sing at Christmas are not obviously war cries, but if you look a little deeper, that's exactly what they are. Jesus is saying that I've come to do away with that which has imprisoned the people that I so love. What he's doing is restoring the relationship. In a garden we fell, but in a garden he prayed. And our restoration was the very reason that he was born. Jesus, as the representative of all humankind, stood in our place for us, as us, and declared that restoration would come. He shouted no into the darkness of our yes. He said no more to the slavery which we had been caught up in and bound by. Christmas is about the gospel crashing through the messy, dark world that Satan has pulled over our eyes. Paul talks about being concerned that just as the serpent beguiled Eve, that we would be deceived in similar manner. He talks about a veil being over the eyes of the unbelievers. There is a very real matrix-like reality that has taken hold, and it's a thing that we're not even aware of because we breathe it and live it. We are like fish who don't know that they're in water because it's all they've ever known. The very air that we breathe is tinged with demonic smoke. And I don't mean to paint a pessimistic picture and say that you should, you know, look for the bad, look for the evil, look for Satan. No, no, no. His rule is over. He's a lion with no teeth at this point. Jesus has declared an end to his rule. He can deceive and he can cast shadows and he can use deception, but he is ultimately only able to use one tool, and that is the lie. 
The lie is the only real weapon the enemy has against you. If you believe the truth, the lie will have no power over you. It isn't that we have all these things in our minds which are correct that Satan has wound around our brains and and kept us in captivity with. That's not the definition of a stronghold. A stronghold is the fact that you are believing a lie in the face of the one who is the truth and refusing to believe in your Savior who is the way, the truth, and the life. Instead, you choose the lie of the enemy who sets up a stronghold in your mind. He begins with a doubt or he begins with a tiny little thought which is just off enough to enslave you. But Jesus comes to do away with all bondage of the enemy, all demonic junk which we wrestle with and speak against and pray against and cast out. Jesus has come to decisively, finally, for all time, put an end to that. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. And the curse has rippled throughout all of our known existence. When Adam and Eve declared that they would follow the serpent, they would believe his lie. They would choose his truth over God. The curse was set forth. God set up the world in such a way that there are consequences when we break his order. And it isn't a punishment so much as a built-in reaction. It's more like sin itself has its own built-in consequences. God doesn't have to step in and punish when sin itself is its very own punishment. The wages of sin are death. If you work for sin, you will reap the wages. You will be paid for your work in death. It's a natural progression. It's a consequence that is part of the very thing itself. It isn't that you have an ugly, horrible, mean, vindictive father who wants to punish you because you've infringed upon his holiness. It is the fact that sin itself is so toxic. It has within it its own consequences built in. But that too, Jesus came to shatter. Jesus came to shatter the chains of sin in whatever form they take. Maybe for you, it's addiction to a particular thought pattern. Maybe it's addiction to a particular substance or a particular form of media. Maybe you simply cannot believe that you've been forgiven by someone, and so you bring the guilt, the anxiety, the worry, the constant upkeep of your sin before God over and over and over and over, and you cannot hear him shouting through Christmas that you have been set free. You cannot hear God speaking to you because you're using your ears to listen to the lies of the enemy, which says that God is mad, God has separated you from himself, and God has a punishment for you that is so bad you cannot comprehend it, and you deserve this because you are horrible, a terrible bug that he will squash, hanging over the fires of hell by a very thread like a spider. Jesus, too, comes to undo all that. 
It may take years. It may take many, many, many years. Or it may be instant. But the power of the gospel is available to us to set us free from whatever form of sin, curse, sickness, disease, whatever the result is of the fall of mankind that we've gotten ourselves all tangled up into. The power of the gospel is sufficient to break those chains. Jesus is a beautiful, cute little baby squirming in the feeding trough, surrounded by braying donkeys and crowing chickens. And that's a beautiful picture, and we get to see that. Shepherds out in the field watching their flock by night, and this this beautiful, graceful angel descends and says, guess what? I have the best news possible for you. And we look and try to portray that in nativity scenes and in different plays and various forms. And I think we need to remember that any time the angels manifested themselves in the scripture, it was not a cute, beautiful, glorious, peaceful moment for the people who were subject to these visitations. They fell on their face absolutely terrified because the host of heaven came and said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth with those with whom God is pleased. So see, angels are not these cute little cherubs. They are powerful warriors. Let's not forget that the one that we're the most afraid of, which is Satan, was once one of the heavenly host. They had to say peace because those shepherds were absolutely terrified. What what happened when Jesus was born is that the commander was in the manger and the army was in the sky. The invasion took place on heaven uh, in heaven and on earth. The invasion of Christmas is such good news. God has not come to blow this world apart and start over because he's just utterly and completely disappointed with us. He has come because there was no other way to save us. There was no other way but to step into our place, in our stead, as us, and experience the very alienated mindset that we all walked around with. Jesus took that on himself. And in the garden, after 30-some-odd years of ministry on the earth, he feels the alienation. And on the cross, as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, why have you left me? He feels down to the very essence of his being separation just as we did. But the difference in Jesus and us is that we feel the presence and we shy away. We feel the alienated mindset of Adam ringing down through the years, hiding God's face behind a lie, and we say, 
I'm not worthy. Oh God, forgive me, for I am nothing. And Jesus says, I refuse to believe in the separation. I refuse to believe in the lie. I refuse to buy that he has left me. I refuse to believe what every ounce of my being is telling me as a human being, that the father, angry, upset, vindictive, ready to throw the lightning bolts, has left me. He stood in our place and he said, I refuse to be separated in my mind from my father. Jesus waged not just spiritual warfare, but mental warfare as well. As every human being placed into the Son of God on that cross in a mystical union. Jesus in our place hangs there and he, representing us in body and in mind, shouts into the darkness, I will not believe it. And by speaking the truth, he nullifies the lie. So we don't have to live in that place of fear of our Father anymore. The full wrath of God against the separation that we all believed, that we all felt, the full wrath of God against what had brought us and God to a place where we could not be reconciled because of our own brokenness, it was blown apart on that cross. And that is the reason that Jesus came to stand in your place as you and to receive on your behalf the truth instead of the lie because all of us were incapable of doing what Jesus did. We're incapable of living a perfect life before the Father. We are incapable of seeing the truth in the midst of the lie. We are incapable of walking out in perfect harmony with the Father, the will of God. But because he did it, being incapable is no longer a handicap for us. Because he did it, God sees it as if we did it. This is what Christmas is about. It's invading a lie that said that we were separated from the Father. It's invading a kingdom which said, oh, I have won. And Jesus says, no, no, no. <laughs> you thought the game was over, buddy, but it's just beginning. I imagine the powers of hell shook and trembled and absolutely ran for cover when the heavenly host declared from the sky, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men. All of heaven and earth joined together as Jesus came into this world physically to walk in our place right down to being born as one of us and dying as one of us, walking as one of us, every day shouting, I refuse to believe that you hate me, Father. I refuse to believe that I've been separated from you, Father. I refuse to believe the lies which have been ingrained in humanity. I refuse to allow the separation which they all feel. Again, lies. He breathes the truth into the midst of the lie, and in so doing, bursts it apart, comes apart at the scenes. It absolutely decimates it. Jesus has come to wage war on the lie 
with the truth. Satan is the father of lies, but Jesus is the truth. This baby not only was his birth the most beautiful birth in all of history, it was the most violent, the most cosmically upheaving birth of a human being that has ever been and ever will be. It was the most cosmically effective birth in the history of mankind. All of heaven was aflame with excitement as this baby was born. And Mary, she didn't yet understand, but she treasured up all these things in her heart, musing over them, going over them, meditating on them day and night. She had a very special place in this salvation story. And I think we need to be careful that we don't give her undue credit. See, as Protestants, I imagine most of you listening are, we have perhaps gone too far in the other direction in reaction to our Catholic brothers and sisters who we believe venerate Mary erroneously. But surely the vessel whom God chose to birth salvation into the world is worthy of our great respect. Surely it's worth looking at her life, looking at her response to the angel, looking at her beautiful raising of the Son of God and having great respect for this woman. This incredible act of faith which she took on is really something. So don't throw out Mary in your musings over Christmas just because it's a reaction against almost a veneration that borders on worship. Mary's the new ark, <laughs> the one in whom the sacred link between heaven and earth is contained. She's a beautiful, wonderful figure and certainly worthy of our respect. I'm very thankful for Mary. Now, I don't pray to her, but I think if we... If we think that the, the Hail Mary and the, the various things that Catholics utter uh, in relation to her is praying to her as if she's some sort of divine being, while there are segments of the church that would go in that direction more in Latin America and places like that, it's, uh, it's more of a mix of the culture that was already there being combined with the Catholicism and kind of bringing her to a place of, yeah, it's, it's almost an undue worship. But I will tell you, contrary to popular belief, Mary is not worshipped in the Catholic faith. Uh, she is greatly venerated, and she is seen as the one who, as the mother of Jesus, maybe has some influence over him. You know, Jesus is the son, Mary is the mother and I'm not saying that we should all start saying the Hail Mary. It's a beautiful reminder as you uh, speak those words 
of what took place because it's it's exactly the words of the angel to Mary. Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. It's a greeting. It's a beautiful thing. It's a reminder of this salvation which we're talking about today. So that was a little aside, little tangent there about Mary, but don't don't neglect Mary as a source of inspiration and hope and beauty and grace and faith. I think if you look at her life and look at her response to what happened to her, it's, a, it's amazing that she responded in the way she did. It's, it's just incredible what she did and uh, the way that she was used of God. And I, I think uh, as the mother of Jesus, the early church called her the mother of God, it's worth looking into. So... There you go. That's my little thought on Mary. But let's get back to Jesus for a minute. What happened on that first Christmas, foretold by the prophets, looked for by the wise, has massive implications for us today. As we think Christologically, as we think in a cruciformed way, Jesus came to blow apart the work of the devil and to establish the kingdom of God. No question. No question. However, I think we have to be careful that we don't just say that Jesus, especially on a podcast called Cruciformed, which is certainly focused on the cross, I don't think that it's fair to say that Jesus was born just to die. Now, he absolutely was born to die. He came to be one of us, as us, to die in our place, no question. But it's a mistake to see that Jesus' life is just kind of the trail leading up to his death, because that's what it was all about. Yes, the cross is the focal point of history. Yes, that is the place where God and man, fused together as one, is ultimately reconciled. Yes, that is the place where salvation is affected for all humanity. Yes, that is the place where we should stop and stand wide-mouthed in awe at what God has done. But don't forget that it is not just the life leading up to the death and then the resurrection, as if his life itself was not important. It's, it's not like, you know, Jesus' ministry, he gets born, uh, excuse me, he gets born, he is born, he grows up. He, he actually has to develop. Scripture is clear that he had to develop into uh, someone who was growing in favor with God and man. He is someone who grew in the wisdom and the stature of God. Uh, he grew up into a wonderful Jewish rabbi, but he didn't get just come out knowing everything. He didn't come out knowing the Jewish law. He didn't come out knowing all these things. Now, I know Jesus is the manifestation of God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. But he, he came down and condescended to us in a way that he limited himself. This is, <laughs> I think this is a really good case for open theism and its idea of the limitations that God places on himself. Jesus limited himself to set aside the glories of heaven in order to come and dwell among us and be one with us. And in doing that, he subjected himself to everything that we're subject to, 
temptation, weakness. Um, I'm sure he got tired. The scriptures are absent on whether or not Jesus ever got sick. It's a possibility. If he could get tired and he could get hungry and he could get fatigued and he could get depressed, as he certainly is in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's possible that he could get sick. That's speculation. I don't know. Um, he, he healed all these people. He is the healer. He is the very essence of healing. He is the one who just has so much compassion for these people and, and they touch him and the power goes out of them, out of him and into them and, and they are restored. So it's possible that Jesus could have gotten sick. But what I'm saying is, don't forget it is the entire life of Jesus that's important. It is not just the death. He gets, it's like, you know, you got the two endpoints. You've got the beginning and the end. You've got the birth and the death and then the resurrection. And then he goes up to heaven. Don't forget it is the life in its entirety of Jesus, which is applied to us. It is the vicarious humanity of Jesus, which is applied to us. He is born in our place as one of us. He lives in our place as one of us, ministers in our place as one of us. He is one of us, and he is for us, and his life is for us. Every recorded moment of Jesus' life, and every moment that wasn't recorded, and there were many, 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 many. If you look at this book, you look at the scriptures and you look at the gospel stories, it's a very small chunk of Jesus' life. What was he up to for all those other years? All of that, every moment from his first breath out of his mother's womb to his last breath before he ascends into heaven was for you. And every breath he's taken since is for you. God will not be God without us. It's his choice. It's his decision. God refuses to be without us. Emmanuel. Beautiful phrase that we use at Christmas. Emmanuel. God is with us. He's with us because he cannot stand to have us without him. There is no deficiency within the Trinity. Don't misunderstand me. There is no missing piece that we have to fill in God's heart. It's not like God has a human-shaped hole in his heart. But he acts that way sometimes. His love for us, his compassion, his desire, his heartbeat is so loud for you and me that he did everything to ensure that we would be with him for all eternity. He did everything possible to ensure that we would not slip off into the black hole of sin and damnation. He did everything possible to make sure that there was nothing in the way between us and him. Not even the lie which says we're not worthy to approach his holiness because we're so bad. He would not allow anything to come between us. It's a beautiful song 
reckless love. There's no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. There's no mountain you won't climb up, wall you won't kick down coming after me. There's no shadow you won't light up. It's a beautiful, wonderful song. God refuses to let you go. He refuses to let you be without him. He refuses to let the fallen gods, Satan and his cohorts, to drag us down with them into their misery and alienation. He refuses to let us go. Yet I believe he will respect you if in the end you decide that you will be without him. I think there is such a wideness in the mercy of God. There is so much room in his grace that if there is an ounce of willingness to believe what he has put into place, if there is an ounce of willingness in the heart of any human being when they are faced with the reality of God, that he will use that to sweep them up into his arms. I have a very gracious view of salvation. We won't get into universalism and all that right now. I'm not a universalist. But I have great hope. I have great hope that Jesus, his work was so... It's hard to put into words. His, his work was so wide-reaching and glorious and beautiful and absolutely effective for all humans because he becomes one of us and steps into our place and affects salvation in a way that ripples through history forward and backwards from the cross all the way back to the garden and all the way to the end. His blood covers everyone. Paul is clear on this point. Peter is clear on this point. I do not believe that you can make the case that the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, the giving of himself for us was not effective for everyone. I believe the Bible is very clear that God did everything necessary for us to be with him, period. He knows us. He knows you and me, and he knows what it's like to be one of us because he is still one of us for all eternity, for all existence. Again, we're talking about things that are hard to talk about, so words fail me. But Jesus became one of us. He became like you. He became like me. And he will eternally forever be incarnate as a human being. That's an astounding thought. But God has so tied himself up with us that he refuses even to go back. Now, we can speculate on what was Jesus before the incarnation. Was he a spirit? Was he some sort of pre-incarnate form of Christ? What, what was he? We don't know. There are theophanies and different little examples in the Old Testament where we believe that we're seeing the pre-incarnate Jesus, but we we don't know. We can only speculate. 
some scholars say that that's absolutely just angels, messengers of the Lord. Others uh, make the connection that it was Jesus. Paul says that uh, the rock that guided them in the desert, that, that's a very clear reference to Christ. But all this to say that Jesus, he has come and effected salvation in a way from the very beginning to the very end. His blood covers all, absolutely all. And if you're willing and you are able to believe, not perfectly, none of us can believe perfectly. This gets back to Jesus in our place. None of us can believe perfectly. None of us can have perfect faith, perfect understanding, perfect comprehension of what he's done. None of us can. It is not the faith of Ben that saves Ben. It is not the faith of you that saves you. It is the faith, and rather the faithfulness of Christ that saves you. By faith we are saved, but it isn't our faith. It is the faith and the faithfulness of the Son of God. That was a point that T.F. Torrance was really, really, really clear on. And I think it's 100% right. That it is the faith of Jesus that saves us. And this is a point that I definitely did not initially grab a hold of. Because it sounds so weird. It sounds very word of faith to me. It is the faith of God which created the world. You know, he spoke and the faith was uh, bringing things into existence. His faith is what created all things. No, I don't mean that kind of new age cosmic faith as a creative force, though there is some truth to that. What I mean is it is not my trust, my hope, my leaning into something, whether it's in great measure or very small, that saves me. It isn't my measure of faith which heals me. It isn't my measure of faith which affects for me any of the blessings that God has promised to pour out on me. It is the faith and the faithfulness of the Son of God on my behalf, in my place. He's the one who does it all. And that's what Christmas is about. That is what Christmas is about. Christmas, the coming of the Savior, It's a war. It's a war cry that is uttered from the heavens. Do not be afraid. Well, I'd be afraid too if I saw legions of angels in the sky knowing that just down the road a new king had been born. Something was happening. Something was changing. Let's not forget that Jesus is not just the Savior. He's the King. He is the King. It's a word that we don't really fully grasp today because we're not under, for the most part, a monarchy in the modern world. Whether you're under a prime minister or a president or a queen or, you know, uh, even the queen in the UK and elsewhere... It's, it's, it's not quite the same picture as uh, the monarchy that would have been present in Jesus' day. Jesus came to put an end to the worldly powers and the powers of Satan. Uh, 
and the rival gods which had set up themselves in the place of the people who were rightly meant to rule this world. Jesus Christ is the king. In fact, as he's being crucified, that's exactly what he says. Pilate says, they say that you're a king. Is it true? And Jesus says, you would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you. Bold words when you're on death row. And the big sign that they put above Jesus' head, Behold the King of the Jews. That's true, but it's incomplete. He's not just the King of the Jews. He's King of the Americans. He's King of the Canadians. He's King of the Mexicans. He's King of the Latin Americans, he's king of the Chinese, the Japanese, the Vietnamese, every single person in the world Jesus represents. Jesus is the king of the world. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. You know what I said? I wasn't going to quote that on here, but I am. I'm actually going to go over the, the whole song, the whole song lyrics, because it is a war cry. It's a beautiful, glorious war cry symbolizing exactly what has taken place in this birth of the sun. Give me a second here to pull the lyrics up. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Now remember, when Jesus prays, as an example to us, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. He says, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, holy, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Jesus is teaching us to pray that the reality of what has taken place, what has begun in him, in his birth, in his death, in his life, would be fully manifest on this planet through you and me. He says, pray, your kingdom come. Remember, if the kingdom is being invoked by Christ, the king himself, to come, that would mean, this is controversial, but that would mean that the kingdom had not yet come. If we are to pray, your will be done, that means the will of God is not always done. Going back to my thesis, there's more in this world going on than just us and God. The rival powers have set themselves up usurping the place of mankind in God's economy. And they rule and they reign in opposition to the will of God. 
Make no mistake that he will one day dethrone and fully throw down these rival powers. They have a very short time. But right now, as we think, what does this mean to me? How can Christmas impact me now beyond just giving gifts? God gave the greatest gift in the world, so here's a present. That's not wrong, but it's not deep enough. It's not deep enough. Jesus said, pray like this, your kingdom come. So we are to pray, let the king come, your kingdom come. Going back to joy to the world, the verse says, let earth receive her king. And the hallelujah chorus, the kingdoms of this world have become those of the Lord and of his Christ. Let every heart prepare him room. There's a little, little allusion there to the fact that there was no room when Jesus came. The greatest king in history had no palace in which to be born. He had no great birthing room to welcome him in, in comfort and splendor and glory. It was a place where animals were kept. Dirty. My parents have a barn. There's chickens and horses and cows and all sorts of things. And I just can't imagine a baby being born in that environment. It's nasty. It's dirty. It's certainly not sanitary. My nephew was born recently. And I just cannot see... My brother and his wife squat down in the hay as they give birth to this beautiful baby boy. And yet this is how Jesus came into the world. This is how the king of all creation came among us. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. The King came to reign. And we are to reign in and through Him. That's the original design. Let men their songs employ. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains, repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. It's a joyful occasion, Christmas, because it means that the King has come, that the Savior reigns, that the end of darkness and that old way is soon to come upon us. And that leads us to verse 3, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. This is a direct reference to the fall of man in the garden. He comes to make his blessings flow. And where it says blessings, let's insert for a moment the word kingdom. He comes to make his kingdom flow. He comes to make his rule flow. 
in the presence and in the midst of this curse, in the presence and in the midst of this consequence of the fall of mankind and the fall of the angelic world, he comes to make his kingdom manifest. He comes to do away with all of that darkness and all of that deception and all of those lies. And the roaring lion that has no teeth is shown to be exactly what he is, a deceiver and a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And you do not have to live under that anymore. Jesus came to break decisively the powers of Satan and his kingdom. He has come to set up his rule on the earth, and you and me get to be a part of that. Christmas is not just a war cry by the sun in the face of the usurper. Christmas is a recruiting cry. Join me. Oh, you are already a part of me. You're already one with me. You're already joined to me mystically. Yes, but join me. Walk out that which I have brought about into this world. Jesus is looking for partners. We talked about this before. God is always interested in working with us. It's his heart to work with us, to work in the midst of us, to work through us. It is his heart to have a partner. It's his heart to have someone who's joining with him and bringing about his work in this world. That's what he's looking for. He's saying, join me to spread that blessing, to spread that kingdom. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. And finally, verse four, he rules the world with truth and grace. The law came through Moses, but truth and grace came through Jesus Christ. And let's change that word world to more truthfully reflect what is the case. He rules the cosmos with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. And wonders of his love. And wonders of his love. Christmas is beautiful, sweet, peaceful, lovely. But it's also cosmos-shakingly powerful. It's also thunderously, gloriously incredibly, earth-shatteringly, beautifully, invasion. And you and me get to be a part of that. You and me get to join in that invasion. And I encourage you, as you think about the cute little baby in the manger and all these nativity scenes, Remember that that's the commanding officer, and in the sky is a host of heaven. The commanding officer is in the manger, and the army is in the sky. 
God is the God of heavenly armies. And he fights for us. He was born to fight for us. He was born to live for us. He was born to minister for us. He was born to die for us. Yes, he was born to rise for us. But don't forget, he was born as us. He was born as one of us. He ministered as one of us. He grew in wisdom and stature as one of us. He cast out demons as one of us. He resurrected the dead and healed the sick as one of us. He went to the cross as one of us. And he died and rose and ascended as one of us. God with us, but also God as us. Incredible. Incredible. Christmas was an invasion. And that is episode six. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. I wish you a very Merry Christmas. And if you don't believe in Christmas, don't celebrate Christmas. I still wish all of the blessings of the Savior upon you. And I hope that you have a very happy and blessed time as you celebrate Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or Christmas or whatever it is. May the God of peace who will soon crush Satan under our feet bring you into a place where you are continually seeing Christ as the full revelation of what God is all about. He came to invade and he came to make us invaders as well. And that is that. Merry Christmas.